We're going to have our main Bible reading now, which is Luke chapter 19, verse 45, all the way to Luke 21, 38. Again, I'll be reading in the ESV, if you'd like to follow. Luke 19, verse 45, says this. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is who gave you this authority. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son, perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness inscription does it have? They said Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marvelling at his answer, they became silent. 
there came to him some Sadducees who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterwards the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given a marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given a marriage, for they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush when he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. But he said to them, How can you say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus called him Lord. So how is he his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place. But the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up, even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. 
and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfil all that is written. Alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be a great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. For they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distressed of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all this has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. We'll do keep that text open. We're going to be looking at that together. Just to say there is an outline of where we are going in the handout. And for the youngsters, there is also your children's activity sheet that you can fill in as you go. Just to say at the end of the talk, there will be an opportunity to ask any questions or make any comments about what we're looking at. So I mentioned that now so you can be thinking as we go through But before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time now to reflect uh, on your word. And as your people, please would you help us to listen carefully uh, to what has been said, to, um, to trust uh, the goodness of your word and to be obedient to your command. And we pray that as we do this as your people, that we would vindicate who you are. You are the God who is truthful, good and rightly sovereign over his people. In Jesus' name, amen. Why are they going to kill Jesus? Since Luke chapter 9, Jesus has been telling his disciples that the rulers at Jerusalem are going to kill him. So Luke chapter 9, verse 22, the son of man must suffer things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and the third day be raised. And then again in Luke 18, taking the 12, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, 
and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Now, sure, we all know why Jesus is going to die. Jesus is going to die in the place of his people, paying the penalty for their sin and bringing forgiveness. But why are the rulers at Jerusalem going to kill him? And kill him, they want to. If you look at today's passage in Luke 19, verse 47, 1947, and he, that is Jesus, was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. Why? If he is the Messiah, if he is their Messiah, who has come to bring redemption, why kill him? Why not welcome him? We've been waiting for you since Genesis 3.15. Maybe they didn't recognise who he was. Maybe they didn't know that he was the Messiah. If they had recognised who he was, well, wouldn't they have treated him differently? If they had recognised who he was, well, they wouldn't have killed him, would they? But enthroned him as their long-awaited Messiah. Well, are we therefore to understand Jesus' death as something of a tragedy, a case of mistaken identity? If only the Jewish leaders had recognised who Jesus was, then they wouldn't have killed him. If only they knew. Well, it's in Luke chapter 20, verses 9 to 18, that Jesus tells what's commonly referred to as the parable of the tenants. And the parable is a story about the collapsed relationships between the owner of the vineyard and the tenants. And in the parable, the owner represents God, and the tenants are Israel's leaders. Now, the reason that the tenants want to kill the owner's son is because at some level they recognise who he is. The tenants recognise that as the son of the owner, he is the vineyard's rightful heir. So Luke 20, verse 14. And when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. It's precisely because they recognise him as such that they decide to kill him. In bumping off the air, while the vineyard is theirs to keep. Well, what then does this mean for Israel's leaders? Well, if the owner represents God and the tenants are Israel's leaders, while the owner's servants are the prophets and the owner's son is Jesus. In this parable, Jesus is explaining why Israel's leaders are hostile towards him. The reason that Israel's leaders want to kill Jesus is because at some level, they recognise him for who he is. That as God's son, he is Israel's rightful heir. 
This is not a tragic case of mistaken identity. It's precisely because they recognize him as such that they decide to kill him. In bumping off God's heir, Israel is in theirs to keep. Now, in the parable, the tenant's hostility towards the owner's son isn't the start of their hostility. Let's read again from verse 10. So when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. The tenant's hostility towards the owner's son is of a piece with the tenant's hostility towards the owner's servants. The implication for Israel's leaders is that their hostility towards Jesus is of a piece with their hostility towards the prophets. Their treatment of the prophets and ultimately the son is not one long case of mistaken identity or petty rivalry. Rather, it represents a sustained opposition towards God. Now, this parable not only identifies Israel's leaders as God's enemies, but also what will happen to them. If you're familiar with Psalm 2, which we read earlier, you will know the perilous position that that puts them in. God has promised the inheritance to his son. In Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, it's actually put as a question by God to his son. Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Jesus is the son and will inherit the ends of the earth. It's God's to give, not Israel's to take. But by seeking to do so, they present themselves as enemies of God who reject God's purpose for his son. And the promise of God to his son concerning his enemies is the next verse, Psalm chapter 2, verse 9. God says to his son of his enemies, Psalm 2, verse 9, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. It's not only that their rebellion is futile, but the warning that if they continue on this course they will ultimately be crushed. Now, knowing that Jesus had spoken against them, they seek to catch him out in something that he says. And another time, it would be fascinating to explore further how Jesus here demonstrates biblical wisdom. One of the themes of biblical wisdom in Proverbs is how to speak to people how to respond to them, and in particular, how to speak and respond to foolish people, people who do not fear God. Proverbs was closely associated with Solomon and his wisdom, 
But now one greater than Solomon is here. And Jesus' response to the folly of Israel's leaders demonstrates his wisdom. Well, having failed to catch Jesus out in what he said, Jesus then asked them a question and turns the tables on them. So let's pick it up from Luke 20, verse 41. Luke 20, 41. But he said to them, how can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? Now, if it's the first time you've come across this, and we're going to spend a little bit of time unpacking what Jesus is saying, but if it's the first time you've come across what Jesus says here, there is something of a surprise, because we might expect Jesus to affirm that the Christ is David's son. Jesus is, after all, of the line of David. He's a descendant of David. He's a Davidic king. Yet Jesus seems to imply that the Christ is not David's son, or at least there's a sense that he is not. How can they say that the Christ is David's son, says Jesus? Well, it's here that Jesus takes us explicitly into the world of the Psalms, and therefore the Christ of the Psalms, as he quotes from Psalm 110. And again, to understand what's going on here, it would be helpful if you turn back with me to Psalm 110, because there's a crucial bit for you to see for yourselves. Because it's crucial that we understand who wrote Psalm 110. Just give you a moment to find it. We're thinking about who wrote the psalm. Because if this psalm had not been written by David, but by a courtier, the whole meaning of verse 1 changes. For just suppose, for a moment, the psalm had been written by a courtier. In saying that, the Lord says to my Lord, the courtier would be speaking of Yahweh as addressing the king. In other words, verse 1 would mean the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, the king, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Psalm 110 would then sound like any other enthronement psalm. But, and this is why I want you to turn to it, if you look the superscription says that the psalm was written by David. Now, if David, as king, now says, the Lord, I, Yahweh, says to my Lord, the question is now, who is my Lord? To whom does the king refer to as my Lord when he's not referring to God himself? And we're starting to run out of options. Now, these observations have driven Christians to understand this psalm as one when the person immediately being referred to is none other, none other than the Christ. 
And it's precisely this that Jesus picks up on back in Luke chapter 20 when he asks, David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? What he's saying is this, if the Christ was just a mere descendant of David, well, he would be subject to the dynastic head. However, David understands his relationship to the Christ to be quite different. David understands the Christ to be superior to him and not merely a descendant. David calls him Lord and not merely son. What we're witnessing here is Jesus on the offensive. He raises a theological question about the Christ. Now that the question goes unanswered by Israel's leaders further reveals their folly. His question leaves them silenced. Admiration for the temple provides the setting for the outline that Jesus gives of the things that are to take place in the future. And it's not uncommon to use this material to encourage that kind of speculation about when Jesus is going to come back. When war breaks out or when there's a pandemic, some are quick to focus our thoughts on how all of these signs that It means that the end is nigh. But Jesus' concern is not to encourage speculation, but faithful witness. Let's read again from chapter 21, verse 10. Then he said to them, Nations will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, and not a hair of your head will perish, By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Jesus' priority for his disciples is there in verse 13. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. As nations rise up against nations, as there are earthquakes, famines and pestilences, the work at hand for his disciples will be the proclamation of the gospel. Calling for repentance for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus Christ. Now, this, of course, we will see worked out in the early church in Luke's second book, the book of Acts. There, persecution is the context in which bold witness is given and the gospel advances. Now, we might be confused by the apparent discrepancy between verse 16 and verse 18. Verse 16 anticipates that some of Jesus' disciples will be martyred, that in bearing witness to the kingdom of God, 
they will be killed. Yet verse 18, Jesus promises that not a hair on their head will perish. And further in verse 19, that it will be by their endurance that they will gain their lives. What Jesus is saying to his disciples is that despite persecution and the threat to physical life, that they will ultimately be safe and secure with God and his Christ. It's reminiscent, isn't it, of what Jesus said to them back in Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, verse 6, Jesus said, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you have more value than many sparrows. Jesus' teaching continues to help orientate the disciples amid the growing opposition to him. You see, if they fear their persecutors, they risk being compromised. If they fear God, they will contend in persecution and bear faithful witness. Well, where does this all leave us? Let me just spell out one implication for us, and then we'll close. What we've been thinking about this morning contributes more widely to our understanding of what we think the human problem is. Because there can be a tendency to think that the human problem is a horizontal one. That is to say that the problems of the world are because we are hostile to one another. If only we could treat one another better, be more understanding, then the world would be a better place. But texts such as Luke chapter 20, 21 contribute to the bigger picture of what we're to understand the human problem to be. One that's not simply horizontal, but vertical. That is to say that central to the human problem is that humanity, fallen humanity, is hostile towards God. And it's precisely that problem that's addressed in the gospel. The proclamation of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus. The gospel is all about turning back to God. Receiving God's forgiveness. And trusting the provision he's made through the death of his son on our behalf. Well, let's pray. And then I'll open up to any questions or comments that you might have. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the promises that you have made to your Son concerning your plan for the whole world, that you would give him as an inheritance the ends of the earth and fill it with your people. And we pray, as we've been considering this morning, that rather than um, go easy on the uh, leaders of Israel, that they were just making a tragic case of mistaken identity, that actually their hostility to Jesus is actually fueled at some level because they know he is the son and therefore the heir, and therefore they want to get rid of him 
so they can have it for themselves. Father, I pray you'd help us to fit that into our framework, that since uh, Genesis 3, the whole of humanity is um, hostile to you. Um, But rather than despair, we thank you that you sent your son precisely so that he would redeem a people. As we turn to you, uh, you give us mercy and forgive our sins. Um, Please, Father, would you help us to be those who are quick to kiss the son, lest he be angry with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, time for any questions or comments. I appreciate I've not said something about everything. So if there's something that I haven't talked about and you were hoping I would, you could ask. I also appreciate the stuff about Psalm 110. If that's new to you and you still haven't got your head around it, by all means ask me about that, because that's one thing to be, just to be clear about, because it's so um, helpful. Susie. Sure, thanks, Susie. So a question about this idea that the Israel uh, killed Jesus so they could have Israel for themselves. What does that mean? Did they not want a Messiah? Um, so I mean, interestingly, I think all the way through the gospel, basically Jesus is disrupting Israel's leadership. Um, so even you know, the bit in uh, Luke 20, verses 1 to 8, when they asked him about John the Baptist. I mean, he's, he, Jesus' questioning very quickly exposes that Israel's leaders aren't competent to govern uh, Israel. You know, they, they, they're exposed as um, fools who are more concerned about keeping the status quo or keeping the people happy. Um, and so I take it that at one level they they want to continue as Israel's leaders. Um, I mean, it's folly because you think, well, what does that even mean? You know, it's not yours to have, you know, because you're rejecting God's purposes for Israel. And you know, as Jesus goes on, the temple is going to be destroyed. You know, so it's, it's you, can't, you can't take what is not yours because, I mean, and that's what Psalm 2, when you get that whole picture of God laughing at his enemies, it's just, it's, it's a... It's a way of saying it. It, it's, it's so silly to reject God's purposes to try and take that which um, he's promised to his son. So I think, and if your question is like, well, come on, guys, what are you doing? I think it, it, it's folly. It's not going to end well, which is the whole point. But I think it is this the theme of they, they like their position. And is it described in, in 20, in the 20, and it says when Jesus warns them of them, that they like to walk around in long robes, love greeting the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, the places of honour, feasts. So it's that kind of, they want that to continue. And obviously, Jesus is threatening the whole sort of status quo. So I think it's, does that help? 
details. Yes, hi. Yes, thank you. What's your, what's your name, by the way? Matt. Matt, hi, Matt. So a question of um, what did they really know if they were looking for the Messiah? You know, why did they respond in that way? That kind of thing. So I think it's fascinating. And I think, I mean, going back to what Susie said, I think it is, um, it is easy to be quite sympathetic on the these of Israel saying, you know, well, you know, we're all the same. You know, it's understandable they didn't recognize him and they did what they did to him. But I think this is where the parable of the tenants is so helpful because it exposes really what's going on. Now, interestingly, we're quick to say, oh, they were looking for their Messiah, but were they? Was Israel looking forward to their Messiah? Were they? Because, I mean, in the world of the the power of attendance, Jesus exposes that their whole response to people God has sent has been one of hostility. So Israel ought to have been looking forward to the Messiah, but actually their whole history is one of opposing God's purposes for Israel. You know, that explains why they went into exile, you know, all of that. So I think um, it's... Um, I think Jesus is, is well, why I think the, the, the parable is so helpful is it, it's, it's, it's helping us to see really what's going on, that rather than a people that um, um, love God and are expecting his Messiah and you know, will gladly enthrone him, you've got here people who are obstinate and rebellious and oppose God's purposes for themselves and for others, and that's seen most clearly when not only does God send the prophets, but now they send the son. And what do they do? They kill him, they murder him. So I think that is what is, what's been exposed. Now, quite how much they knew in terms of, you know, if you've asked them, well, who do you think this one is? You know, they may have, may have they, you know, I'm not sure they're gonna say, we know he's the Christ, but don't say anything. You know, we're gonna quietly get him off. But that Jesus saying your whole posture towards him is of a peace with a posture of hostility to God, which you, the nation, have shown. Um, just one thing. I think, and we looked at this a little bit with Acts, this is one of the incredible things about the gospel, is because if this is who the people is, in um, Acts 2, when the Spirit comes... So soon after this people have murdered God's son, that Jesus offers them um, repentance for the forgiveness of sins. I mean, the mercy of God is, is, is staggering. So soon after that, because you know, we're not just saying, oh, that's them, or we're not like that. That's, that's the, that is 
you know, which is the whole thing about God's enemies. God came to reconcile his enemies to be his people. And so I think on the, the darkness, if you like, of Israel's opposition to, to God and his Christ, then the offer of repentance and forgiveness of sins is, is the, the depths of that mercy um, is staggering. Again, so soon after the, the, the event. So, yeah, I think, is that okay? Cool, thanks, Matt. Time for one more. Go on, Mackie. Yes, I was thinking, I was fearful someone might ask me that question. <laughs> and you found it. <laughs> oh, I should have stopped when I got ahead. Let's just um, let's see if we can, what we can work out. Let's, um, let's read, let me read from verse 20, 24, and we'll have a look. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against his people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So um, I'm going to give Tom an opportunity to come in if he wants to. And if he wants to, I don't want to set him up. Now, because I think there might be some interesting stuff from Zechariah going on here. Um, but, so I, I take it, this is just the first, let me have make a stab, and then I'll, um, I didn't I focus on this in my, in my prep. That the, so you're right, this is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, and so, and this is anticipated, so down in verse 31, it says, when you see these things, oh, 32, sorry, truly I say to you, of this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. So there's an expectation that this generation will see Jerusalem be destroyed, which we now happen to be 70, and that's part of the judgment of God on Israel and her leaders. Okay, so that's, that's what's going on. Now, um, my instinct, but it could be wrong, is that when it talks about until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled, that that may be um, um, introducing the theme which Luke will run with in his second book in terms of the inclusion of the Gentiles in the kingdom of God. Um, so it may be that um, part of their purpose will be that they will 
bring about judgment on Israel. But um, that actually God's purpose is that in the Jews rejecting the gospel, it then goes to the Gentiles, which is a theme that sort of um, is picked up on in the book of Acts. And so again, you're getting glimpses of God's purposes beyond uh, the temple and Israel. Um, so I think, I think that is what it might be referring to. But let me check. Tom, do you want to say anything? No. <laughs> that sound about right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. We're um. Uh, which is, okay, just an interesting thing there is, I just do one more last thing on the repentance thing, is the, the, the Jews initially were prosecuted for killing the Messiah, and that's what they had to repent of. But the Gentiles, well, they are guilty of idolatry. You know, they've, they served and worshipped other gods, and so that's where you get this whole theme of repentance there, is called from turning to other gods, to the true and living God, and receiving the same mercy from God. And that's kind of where we fit in, because obviously we weren't there, we didn't kill the Messiah, but we, we share in, in the nation, fallen humanity in rejecting God by um, idolatry, by you know, imagining God as we, see, as we want him to be. And so therefore, as we see this through, what we're included in is a turning from idols to the God and receive mercy from him. Cool, all right, we'll leave it there. But do keep uh, chatting about these things after the meeting and beyond. But we're going to sing now a song I picked because it helps us to reflect on the depths of the Father's love for us because um, as we appreciate how much we have sinned, uh, it helps us to see how much we've been forgiven and loved by God. So please do stand and sing. <laughs>